0: Hey everyone, uh, this is Devin Kumar. Uh, this is a Let's Talk About initiative. This is episode one with Ian Bell. Today we'll be talking about mental health. Um, but before I got get into the podcast itself, I wanted to touch on what this initiative is for those of you who haven't cat or caught the uh, introduction episode. So the Let's Talk About initiative has three components to it. Uh, the first is the Let's Talk About shirts that will be sold, and the goal of that is to increase uh, conversation and connection with other people. Just by wearing this shirt, it's an open invitation to talk about uh, whatever subject is on the shirt. So um, with this podcast episode, uh, I'll be selling shirts that say Let's Talk About Mental Health, and the goal is that by wearing these shirts in public, um, other people will feel invited to also talk about a Topic that there's really no such thing as too much in terms of bringing awareness and talking with others. So, the second component is the podcast, which is what you're listening to right now. And uh, that's essentially leading by example in the conversation that the shirts will hopefully yield. And so, uh, the podcast will introduce someone who is relevant to the field of the subject. So, uh, Ian Bell is a uh, licensed counselor uh, in social work, and so very relevant to the topic of mental health. And then the third component will be uh, charity. So uh, $5 of every shirt will be donated to a uh, organization that the guest speaker will choose. And so it, it's kind of a three-step process there. So bef- let's get into the t- podcast itself. So uh, I want to introduce my uh, great friend and bub, Ian Bell. He's a world, well, a lot of people who are listening to this podcast probably already know him, at, at, especially at this stage when it's, um, you know, um, kind of small. But uh, anyways, uh, Ian Bell's a world record powerlifter and as well as a uh, licensed counselor in social work at UT Austin. How's it going, Ian?
1: It's going good, man. Glad to be here with you.
0: Yeah, thanks uh, for uh, Joining me, so this is the first podcast, and I could have you on several of them, but uh, this is kind of. Uh, I, I felt like this would be really appropriate, and I really value your uh, input on mental health. So I didn't mean to interrupt you. What were we saying?
1: No, man, I was just saying happy to be here. Um, you know, I mental health is my passion. It's something I've been doing, I'm dedicated a lot of time and energy and blessed sweat, and tears too for the last, uh, I guess, two or three years now, but. Uh, yeah, always looking forward to opportunities to talk about it and spread as much information as I can.
0: Yeah, definitely. So um, can you speak a little bit on uh, what your experience as like a mental health professional is, um, maybe like schooling and then professional experience?
1: Yeah. So I got my undergrad degree um, from the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, I got a BS in psychology um, and then got my MSSW, my master's of science in social work. I'm um, at UT as well, and have been working at the UT Counseling Center for the past, uh, I think, two, no, past three years, um, doing individual counseling and group counseling and doing mental health outreach um, and community outreach, um, Yeah, awesome. working with students.
0: Cool. Uh, awesome. So uh, I guess before we get into some of the conversation that I wanted to, uh, I just wanted to have a quick disclosure statement. And that's that none of this episode or the podcast itself, as uh, there's a few themes of this podcast that I plan to have, and one of them is mental health. Um, But none of them are aimed towards being a replacement in any means for therapy with a licensed professional. Um, So Ian is a licensed professional, but he's not your licensed professional unless he is your licensed professional. So uh, I wanted to drop a couple links here. The National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 800-273-8255. And you can also text HOME, that's H-O-M-E, to seven four one seven four one to be connected to a crisis counselor by text. And I want to mention that these resources are available to anyone with any kind of emotional distress, uh, ranging from simply needing someone to talk to and beyond. So um, personally, I've utilized these resources before, and uh, I wasn't suicidal, but um, I definitely was going through a rough time, and I was. it was a great experience. So I think maybe the name National Suicide Prevention Hotline is... Um, it might seem kind of extreme for some people in some cases, but definitely these resources are out there and free for anyone who um, needs anyone to talk to. So um, cool. Well, let's get, let's get into it here. Uh, So let's talk about mental health, Ian. Let's start off with some of the basics and then we'll get a little more interesting from there. Um, I don't know what background of knowledge people listening to this might have on mental health. So I think maybe establishing some uh, basic info would be helpful. Uh, so what, what and, uh, I guess another thing that I want to mention is that th- especially the field of mental health, there's a lot of various opinions and maybe some subjectivity, but I guess it goes without saying that this is your opinion and, um, maybe other people have your different opinions, but you know, i I value your opinion. So this is why I've asked you to come on here. So what is mental health to you and, uh, why isn't it even b- important to begin with?
1: Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, starting off at a, a really fundamental level, mental health is um, it's just our internal emotional and psychological well-being. Um, so, you know, it's just emotions, emotions and thoughts, really, emotion, thoughts, and behaviors um, and how those things um, impact us. Um, but, you know, from a, from a clinical perspective, um, you know, Mental health and physical health and emotional health and spiritual health, really, there is no kind of firm boundary between all those things. They all kind of work together. Um, so when we think about mental health and we think about, you know, our emotional, psychological well-being, we're also thinking about how these different parts of ourself as far as, you know, our social life and our, and our physical life and our spiritual life all intersect and kind of weave together to, you know, impact us.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense. So, um, I know that mental health—you know—we we may not be able to see it like physical health, but there is definitely physical symptoms of uh, mental health. And so, um, I, I guess, like what you are saying, there is there is not really concrete boundaries between how they're all connected. Um, so, was mental health kind of a field that you always wanted to get into, or was it like a matter of experiencing events or? Uh, just life in general that kind of made you realize how important mental health is to begin with?
1: Uh, uh, you know, that's a that's a good question. It's something I think about a lot, um, just kind of why I started doing all this in the first place. Uh, I think a lot of it is informed by my relationship with my family and, and the things that I've seen them experience as far as their own mental health and, and wanting to, Just wanted to be there to support them and learning a little bit more about like, you know, what depression might be or what anxiety might be or PTSD so I can be informed on how to best support the people that were in my life. Um, And then after that, I was kind of thinking like bigger and larger on this community level, like as I got through high school and got into college of like, you know, I know I want to help people in some type of way, but I'm not sure how that's going to look like for me um, or what type of field I would be in to be able to do that. But the more I thought about it, the more I was kind of drawn um, to mental health and to therapy um, to be able to get back to people um, and get back to my community and provide, provide service and be of service. Um, But yeah, I, I started, you know, I continued to kind of hone in on like what that would look like, you know, what that, would that be a psychiatrist? Would that be a psychologist? Would that be a licensed professional counselor? Would that be a licensed clinical social worker? Because uh, there's so many different avenues to do it. But uh, I kind of settled on social work because of the intersection of social justice, you know, with mental health. Um, and it kind of allowed me some like, room to be able to feed both this passion I have for social justice and equity work and for, you know, straight up clinical mental health um, and being able to, to help people.
0: Yeah, that, that that makes a lot of sense, um, and, and I guess that, that brings up a good point in how there are uh, a lot of different uh, professional fields in mental health. Um, so, I, I guess segueing into um, finding a therapist or you know a mental health professional, um, it, it can be a little overwhelming. Uh, personally, when I was finding one, uh, I know there's a lot of abbreviations. There's the LPC, LCSW. Um, How how do you kind of recommend picking a therapist and sticking with them versus maybe trying one out for a few sessions and and versus trying someone else out? Um, How do you kind of recommend going about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that's something that people get tripped up a lot, Uh, tripped up on a lot is like the different letters that come after somebody's name. So yeah, you have LPCs who are licensed professional counselors, you have LCSWs who are licensed uh, clinical social workers. Um, you have people who have PhDs in psychology who are psychologists. Um, you have LCDCs, which are licensed chemical dependency counselors. Um, there's so many different options, um, and I think a lot of people get tripped up on like, I don't know what's best. You know, I don't know what set of letters is going to be the most effective for me. But really, man, like, it's all about the relationship that you have um, mm-hmm. with the counselor with the therapist that you meet you know all the research will tell you that the most important intervention factor is the therapeutic alliance you know it's not kind of what it's not what therapeutic model you're using or uh what type of different skills that you're using it's all about your connection and alliance with that person in that therapeutic sense so you know i i'm a big proponent of people shopping around you know i mean you're never going to know you know how that feels until you actually sit down in a room with somebody and start talking to them, and see if they're going to be able to meet you where you're at, and really hear what you're saying and get and get the support that you really need or the uh, the the push that you really need. And so I always tell people when I'm you know trying to get someone to connect with a therapist is like, hey, just pick three people, you know, that you see out there. Regardless of, you know, licensure, you know, you want to make sure they're licensed, obviously, but regardless of licensure, pick three people that, you know, after looking at their website or looking at their profile and psychology today that you kind of vibe with, and then schedule a first appointment with all three of them, you know, and sit down with all three of them and, you know, make a decision after that. But it's, it's hard, you know, because... It takes a while to build a really strong therapeutic alliance with somebody, but usually you can get a good feel after that first session.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and uh, I, I like how you also mentioned that the technique of therapy isn't even as that like the the technique of therapy as well as um, what the credentials are uh, aren't. As important as the relationship with the therapist. So uh, that was another issue I had is, you know, there's like cognitive cognitive behavioral therapy, okay. uh, I guess, like, um, all these different types, but I guess CBT is one of the biggest ones. But beyond that is maybe the person that you're talking to and the connection there is there. So who, who even needs therapy to begin with? I know, you know, when I was younger, uh, when I heard the, ther- the, the term therapy, or someone was going to therapy, uh, it made me think, oh, like what kind of problem does this person have? But as I realize is we all we all have shit, you know. So mm-hmm. uh who, who who really needs therapy? Um, so you know, we might all have issues, but uh where do we do just because we have issues do we need therapy, or is there kind of some kind of guidelines that tells us that we might need to see a therapist?
1: That's a good question. Um, you know, I I I don't think anybody needs therapy i do think everybody can benefit from therapy
0: oh, Okay. because
1: um, like you said like everybody has their own shit um you know i feel like that that line that kind of the i feel like there's an artificial line that we kind of create that demarcates like i don't need therapy and then it gets to a line where i'm experiencing this amount of symptoms and then i need therapy mm-hmm. i mean I, you can access therapy at any point You know, whether it's like low grade anxiety or depression or you're going through a breakup or, you know, the the death of a loved one um, to full on, you know, clinical major depressive disorder or, you know, full on PTSD and anywhere in between. I think therapy can be beneficial for people. But I always like to think of it as if you feel like your internal environment and the emotions and the thoughts and the behaviors that you're experiencing are impacting your ability to function in any way then therapy, I think therapy is a useful step for you. You know, it's a useful intervention. And also, you know, kind of going back to what the question that you had before of like therapy feeling overwhelming, you know, I want to name like the stigma that there is right. And coming to therapy, Right, I think yeah. a lot of us, at least in my community, right. Like being a black man um, and within the black community, there's a lot of stigma around going to therapy and that, you don't go to therapy unless you're unless you're crazy, right? Like mm-hmm. you you go to therapy if you are about to be um, involuntary hospitalized and institutionalized for having a mental health disorder. Right? Mm-hmm. It's always yep. like you know, but that's not that's not what therapy is. But we learn that as kids, right? We learn that in growing up in our culture, and then it's like, well, I don't need therapy because I'm not that, right? Like I'm not schizophrenic or I'm not you know I'm not suffering from PTSD. Um, I'm just kind of sad most of the days, or I just have, you know, my anxiety keeps me from doing some things, but I'm not that over there, so I don't need to go to get therapy. But I think what I, my big goal, and a big reason why I got involved in mental health in the first place is, I, is to kind of reduce the stigma that, you know, this can be a helpful tool and intervention for everybody, because we all got stuff, yeah. and we don't need to continue to just live with that if we don't need to right if it's not serving us then we don't need to do that
0: yeah and uh yeah like what you were saying um like certain uh races and populations uh there's like an enhanced stigma behind going to therapy um as well as maybe even like um like toxic masculinity saying like oh just like suck it up so yeah it's it's uh i i found that um You know, there's a lot of influx towards mental health, especially on social media. Um, But it's it's definitely something that can be um, recognized as, I guess, more normalized. And oh, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say. I I feel like that's something mental health and the access and the awareness of it is something that's become a lot more normalized, maybe within the last five years. Um, But yeah, there still is. You know, multiple levels of stigma, whether it's, you know, race, culture, ethnicity, or gender that can impact just like how easy it is to take that step to seeking out therapy. I think, you know, a recent study, I don't know when it came out, maybe two or three years ago, like it showed that most people wait about seven years before they start therapy.
0: Like oh, they,
1: wow. they, they said there's a process when you when you first start thinking about it, you actually sitting down with a the therapist. On average, it's about seven years for people. so it makes you think about like what goes on in that seven-year process like how many barriers do you have to overcome in order to take that first step and a lot of it is just the things that we internalize
0: yeah and how much better that the quality of life could have been during that time of i guess internal dialogue and finally realizing or deciding to go to therapy so i i actually just want to take a quick step back before we get into some of the more um interesting stuff here so uh There's a lot of like fine lines, I feel like that can be uh, walked on or crossed in mental health. And one of them might be the role that a therapist plays with a client. So um, from personal experience, kind of uh, I experienced with one therapist who, and both of these techniques might be pretty common, but it was more of like reflection over what I was saying and me talking about based off what that reflection, maybe more objective reflection was versus another therapist who was a lot more a lot older and had maybe a lot more experience and it was more of like cut and dry advice and uh kind of yes or no and and no that's not a good idea or yes that is a good idea versus oh it sounds like you're thinking this um what what do you think is the appropriate role of a therapist based off those two kind of opposite ends of the spectrum
1: yeah, I think I would add a third, third one in there. And I feel like as therapists, sometimes we act as teachers and mm-hmm. it's like straight up psychoeducation and teaching skills and, you know, working through different behavioral worksheets and figuring out how to, you know, game plan, and strategize around, you know, uh, neg- negative or internalized thoughts and behaviors and emotions. Um, so I think between those three, right, like the, the reflecting and validating, uh, advice giving and teaching. I really feel like we can all benefit from those at different points of our life, depending on what we're going through. And so I think that kind of goes back to the relationship and kind of feeling things out right at the beginning. Um, That allows us to figure out like, what do I need in this moment? Do I need to be taught something to kind of manage my own thoughts and emotions? Do I need somebody to just kind of sit there and listen, reflect back what I'm saying so I can hear and kind of connect the dots for myself? Or then do I need just straight up advice? Like, don't do that. Do this. This doesn't sound like a good idea. Um, I feel like those are all potentially helpful roles for people. But you have to figure out for yourself, like, what do you need in that moment? And, you know, I think an important thing I like to tell people, too, is like when you are meeting with a therapist and say, you're like, you know, three, four or five sessions in and you realize, you know, this just ain't cutting it. There's no obligation to stick with that therapist at all. You know, if you're not feeling it, if it's not vibing well, if you're not connecting with that person, if it's just not the right role in what you need in that moment, cut that off and go find somebody else. Yeah, you know, it's it's there's no obligation to continue meeting with that person. That therapist will be fine, you know, and then in that relationship they'll be okay. You need to go find somebody that's, that's actually going to work for you because you're paying for it. Right, that's money that you're taking out of your pocket. That's your know, money or time and service that your health insurance is paying for. Um, so you want to make sure you get getting the service that is relevant and efficient for you, um, whether it is, you know, validation, teaching, um, or just advice giving.
0: Yeah. It sounds like a super healthy, like, um, boundary of, uh, selfishness. Like if it's just not working out, you know, you, you got to find uh, another therapist for your own sake, as well as maybe uh, selfless in regards to improving so that you can have better, I don't know, quality relationships with the people that you surround yourself with. So a lot of what I was hearing of um, the role of a a therapist, I know a lot of people, uh, myself included, have in the past and even currently uh, go to like friends or loved ones for that kind of advice. Uh, With that overlap, I guess why would we need a therapist versus just going to like a best friend or like, um, I don't know, a a sibling or another loved one?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, I like to think of it as we go to therapists for an objective kind of third party, an objective third party with somebody who can see the whole situation around us and give us back information that can help us in guiding us in where we want to go based on our own goals and values and morals and ethics that we tell the therapist. Mm. Uh, It's it's the removal of bias as much as possible, and we bring all these things to these people, and with their professional knowledge, they can help us and guide us to be the person that we want to be kind of going forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think, you know, that's the hard part. That's what I hear a lot when I meet with people um, who's their first time, you know, coming to therapy, which is most of the people that I see um, working at the counseling center and seeing primarily 18, to 22 year olds is they just want to talk to somebody that wasn't their friends or wasn't their family. Somebody who didn't know the situation, somebody Mm -hmm. who wouldn't be biased and could give clear direction or advice or just be there to support and listen and not butt in and say their opinion. But by no means, you know, you got, do you know, I feel like people should have to choose between two? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I am a strong advocate for people um, building and increasing their social networks and social supports as much as possible, especially while they're in therapy. And I feel like we can, we can use those relationships differently.
0: Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess kind of moving on from some of that, those basic things, uh, when we're talking about the dynamic between advice of like a friend versus a a therapist, sometimes there might be in all relationships, there's kind of a sacrifice of energy or kind of headspace, um, whatever the resources are. Um, So how do we kind of draw the line between giving what we can and and making the sacrifices of any healthy relationship Versus uh, pulling back when it's like too much um, as far as supporting someone with uh, maybe mental illness or uh, just someone who is seeking support. Yeah,
1: that's a, it's a, a really simple and at the same time complicated question, right? Mm-hmm. This, this notion of or not notion this, the concept of setting healthy boundaries with people. Mm-hmm. But I think in the simplest way, I like to think of it as, when you're supporting somebody and you have a friendship and they're going through, you know, a crisis or you know they're just going through chronic mental health, sometimes, um, I like to think of it as if if your support of that person or of that friend is in turn impacting your own mental health and your own functioning, then it might be too much for you to handle alone, and you might have to you might have to set some boundaries on, you know, what you can do and what you can't do. And I think, and also in that boundary setting process, you can also, you know, inform people what some resources might be out there for people to get support mm-hmm. and to get professional help. I think a lot of times when I hear that, it's, you know, somebody supporting a friend and that friend is not talking to anybody else about this and is not seeing a, a therapist or a counselor. And the, the friend has just become codependent on that for support yeah. and crisis management um, which that in itself kind of creates this unhealthy dyad where you're supposed to be the, the person that's always supposed to be there and on on alert and on call and on edge um, to help this person that's in crisis. Right? And then that person, in, in, in giving into that dyad, we kind of enable people's codependency and not uh, branching out and building their own support network and getting help that they might need and learning skills that they might need to kind of help regulate and manage their mental health. So I think health, setting healthy boundaries, I mean, that's just hard, you know, it's very, it's hard. It's difficult. You know, we get worried about, am I going to lose this friend? Like I care about this person. I don't want to see them suffer, but I'm also starting to suffer and everything I'm worrying about. Um, it's a lot to juggle, but I think in the long run, it's helpful for both parties to be able to do that um, and to, because eventually we'll get burnt out, you know what I mean. If we don't set healthy boundaries, we eventually get to this pl- place where we can no longer support people, and we have to totally disconnect from the relationship. And then you, you don't have you don't have a friend anymore. You don't have a yeah. connection anymore at all. Um, yeah. Where, as we can set a set a boundary, we can save and per- preserve the relationship, and we can hopefully drop seeds where somebody will eventually get to this place where they can access help. Um, and get to a place that might be more stable.
0: Yeah, I I definitely hear that. Um, I know in maybe a lot of media, there's like these dynamics that are presented of, I don't want to use the word toxic, but maybe like being there for someone, like no matter what. And uh, it seems like really being there for someone is also being aware of what you can and can't do. Um, because if you're aware of what you can do, then you're able to do it better. So that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So going back, when we were talking about the role of a therapist versus a friend, uh, I also thought that was a good point in getting kind of an unbiased and objective response. You know, with a friend or even a loved one, there might be, for better or worse, maybe some subconscious ulterior motives. In the advice that's being given. But if you're going to someone who is trained in this, and it is supposed to be unbiased and has no, I guess, um, I don't know what the appropriate word would be. But it, it, the the relationship is strictly client and therapist, then I guess you can trust the advice a little more in, in certain situations. So I thought that was a really good point as well. So So, I was introduced to mental health and mental illness from a few different, um, I guess, um, some people and then um, some mediums like social media. And I've actually learned a lot of mental health through, well, also, you know, books and like academic related readings. But uh, social media is something where it's so convenient because we're on our phones, we're on Instagram. And, you know, by choosing what kind of information we uh, subject ourselves to, Uh, we can pick certain, I guess, mental health professionals that have a presence on social media, like Instagram. So how can we, you know, another like drawing the line, how can we draw the line between uh, what's appropriate uh, information to gain from these social media, like mental health professional presences, and uh, what we should kind of ignore or not trust or um, realize that we need an actual therapist for this?
1: Mm. You know that's yeah I, that's a good one because there are a lot of social media accounts that are run by uh, licensed professionals and licensed mm-hmm. counselors and therapists. and there's a lot that I know that put out uh, a lot of great information, like really easily, easily accessible, like uh, pictographs and stuff like that and infographics. So I think that's a good place to start of like just kind of seeing like where is this information coming from? Like, is this just like a, a TikTok influencer that usually is talking about, you know, uh, keto and, and being vegan or something like that? Or is this an actual mental health professional who like does this work um, and is licensed in it? So I think that's a good place to start. You know, I, it's uh, I think outside of seeing a therapist, we're just kind of consuming things on social media. Um, you know, you also just have sometimes things that are, things that are said by people who aren't, you know, actual, uh, therapists or counselors or mental professionals, that doesn't mean it's bullshit. Um, that doesn't mean that it can't work for you. So I, you know, I always like to think of it, if it, if it feels good and if it's helping you, then, you know, that might be the right thing to do in this moment, but you obviously don't want to take in everything that you see on the internet, just like with, with any topic you want to remain critical where you're getting your information from. But if it's, if it's helping you, then it's helping you, you know?
0: Yeah. I guess, uh, you know, advice is advice and wisdom is wisdom regardless. Yeah. I, I was, I, I do like all those kind of like infographics and bullet point lists that a lot of, um, these accounts post and they were definitely a good introduction to me. What I realized and not on my own did I realize, but Um, There's a a couple Instagram accounts that I specifically really trust and follow. And um, they basically talk about that there is like, um, yeah, there's a place for this and it it can be good. But at the same time, it takes away all of these like simple infographics and bullet points, take away the nuances of the individuality. And um, I think that's like something to like keep in mind, I guess. What, what, What are your thoughts on that?
1: That, that's a great point because, you know, when when you put out information like that, it's, you, it's general, right? Like it's not going to be optimized and individualized for each and every single person. So that's kind of what I was thinking, that you have to take everything that you see with a grain of salt, knowing that this might not be for you um, and this, might, this general approach might not work for you. Um, that doesn't mean it's bad. That just doesn't mean that that's the thing for you. And if you are looking for something that is going to be truly align with what you need and what your goals are and what you want to change, um, then it might be that moment in time where you seek out a therapist to kind of think about and structure an individualized plan that's going to help you meet the goals that you want to set for yourself.
0: Yeah. And I know maybe some of the appeal towards relying on like these, these free uh, outlets of information like social media is that they are free and they're economical and, um, you know, some people, you know, it's very understandable not being able to afford therapy and there are like segues, I guess, uh, or mediums that provide more affordable therapy. But at the end of the day, I, I think it's important to note that even those more affordable options still aren't affordable for some people, unfortunately. And, and so what's kind of, um, it may be, what do you recommend for people who are in that situation?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I want to also say like healthcare in itself isn't mm-hmm. affordable for a lot of people, for most people, yeah. honestly. Mm-hmm. And and therapy goes along right with that. It's not equitable. There's not equitable access for therapy. And a lot of times the people who could benefit the most from that service or the people who have who undergo the most hardships aren't able to get the support that they need uh, yeah. because of money. An unfortunate uh, paradox. Yeah. So... There are a lot of community programs out there, you know, depending on what region or the country that you're in or what state that you're in. Um, there's, there's usually programs through the county um, or through the city that provide mental health services that are specifically for people who don't have insurance. Um, so that's always a good place to start. Um, of like, If you still wanted to find an individual counselor and you don't have, in- you don't have health insurance or money is super tight, Going through those state and county and city uh, governmental agencies um, usually um, can be somewhat helpful. And along with that, sometimes there's, you know, there's a lot of nonprofits who do work and provide free counseling services. You know, there's a couple here in in Austin that I know of that usually with those, it's short-term counseling. So, you know, people are giving three to five sessions, um, but it's still free. Right, and there's there's usually you know in most areas of the country nonprofits who are doing that doing that work. Now, with that also is the tax of there's usually wait lists um, to get in to see somebody, but it's another option. I think outside of seeing a literal therapist, books I mm-hmm. think are a great option. Um, it might be a little bit more affordable. There's a lot of great. Um, you know, self-help books, I guess you could say, colloquially, that are written by mental health professionals um, that could be useful. There's, there's one book that I, that I really like called Attached, and it's it's just a, you know, kind of a psychoeducational book about attachment theory and relationships and how our, our attachments kind of inform and impact the relationships that we have later on in life. Mm. And that's, that's a, a book that I recommend to people a lot um for everything you know i think it's really helpful um for all parts of our mental health kind of figuring out our attachment style and being able to reframe and reform that into a secure attachment style but there's a lot of books like that out there that kind of lay out um different theories and practice models that you can then just incorporate into your life
0: yeah no that's great i know uh when i when i first started learning about um you know, attachment styles, it was more relevant to like, um, you know, relationships. But uh, what I realized over like learning more about it is that really impacts like all aspects of life. And uh, just being conscious of like your attachment style can can help. Well, I guess that goes for a lot of things in mental health. But um, just being conscious of like having this mental illness, or this attachment style in itself is like one of the biggest, um, biggest keys towards improving. So, uh, like there's this book, um, driven to distraction and it's a, uh, ADD, it's like a famous ADD book. And, and they, they talk about, uh, um, it's written by a couple, um, clinical psychologists, I think. And they say like the biggest, um, step towards helping someone who's diagnosed with or has ADD is to recognize that they do have it. So maybe that's the same for like, um, addiction, but I don't, I, to, I don't know too much about addiction, but
1: uh, well, you, know, you could say that for, for everything.
0: Yeah, um,
1: when it comes to mental health, like the I think a big part of the work that we do in therapy is, is raising awareness of your own internal environment, raising awareness of your own thoughts and how they impact your behaviors, and how that impacts your emotions. Because mm-hmm. if you're not aware of it, you can't do shit about it. You know what I mean, if yeah. you don't know that it's actually happening and it's just everything is just kind of happening to you, mm-hmm. there's no place, there's no room for you to step in to make an impact on that or make a difference in that or throwing wrench in the in the cycle that's been happening over all this time. So a big part of the work that you do is just kind of figuring out, like, what's going on for me? Like, when I think about this, how does that make me feel when I feel like this? What do I do? Um, and so when I see that, as you get become more aware of that, you can acknowledge what is happening in the moment. And then you give yourself an opportunity to make a decision that might be different than what you did before.
0: Yeah, that, 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 that makes a lot of sense. Um, I know uh, just by, I'm sure a lot of people have also experienced this, but it's crazy what we feel is normal because we are just so used to it and have lived our whole life experiencing certain um, things that we find out is not normal and is um, maybe something that we should address. Um, and I think people with maybe like, like personally, like anxiety and um, some depression, you know, we think like, oh, this is like laziness or that everyone experiences this. You find out like, no, that's not the case. Um, and these are things that you can work on. And it's actually uh, pretty empowering um, to know that, you know, there are like steps towards feeling better in that regards. Um, so I think, that's, I think that's really great. So I guess moving on to kind of the next um, topic here within mental health is that uh, mental health is one of those like sensitive topics um, I think there's a lot of like subjects out there that, um, it's, it's, uh, interesting to have like debates and like playing like devil's advocate for discussion's sake. But mental health is one of the ones that I think maybe it's not the best case to because, uh, when you're talking about how someone feels, it's, it's very, um, you know, it's, it's not really anyone's place to say how anyone else feels. So with you know, with, with it being such a sensitive topic, how can you find that appropriate space to be objective versus, and, and like being real versus when to just be supportive?
1: Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't think, um, we have to separate the two. I think us being supportive is us being real. Gotcha. You know, I think when, uh, when we talk about the difference between real and supportive i think when those are separated for us i think that's also indicates like a lack of just awareness of what mental health is Mm. right and what the impact it could have and what people experience on a daily basis right so like being real is not us just saying like you need to toughen the fuck up right and like get over it and get back to it you know start get off your ass and like let's get at it yeah um I don't think that recognizes the true context of what people experience. So we can both be real and supportive in the way, like, I know what you're experiencing and I know that it's difficult and I want to be here and support you in the best way possible. And we have to start with what people need from us and meet people where they're at, you know? And usually in most cases, or I wouldn't, I won't say in most cases, but a lot of cases people will tell you what the, what they need. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I myself have been, you know, depressed and people have asked me what I've needed. And be are like, I need I need somebody to text me in the morning and yeah. and just say hello. Right. Or I need somebody to like uh, check up on me to see if I ate today. Um, mm-hmm. Little things like that.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Or it can not it, it be like I need somebody to kind of help, you know, kind of like pep me up and, like, motivate me to kind of, like, do this day or to, you know, get up and do some work. And then some people will tell you, like, I need you to, like, like I need you to be, like, tough on me. Like, I need you to hold me accountable. I, like, I need somebody to tell me, like, I'm not doing my shit. When they know that I can do it, let's get it done. But everybody is different, right? So if you come with that one approach that is kind of branded as being real and you come hard at somebody and that's not what they need in that moment, you're yep. just going to get that person shut off from you, right? They're not going to take in any of that. And it's not serving anybody in the end.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you so, have to kind of be in a in a space to like and want account like maybe someone to keep accountability on you versus it coming like unwarranted. And I think like um, asking for like, you know, it, it's so simple to just ask someone like, what do you need from me? Or like, what can I offer you? with, you know, even like someone with mental illness or not, like just as a friendship or whatever it may be, like, uh, how can I better serve you in this relationship? But I, I think maybe a lot of times we take for granted that, um, especially, you know, personally, me and maybe others are very communicative in asking. Um, but there's a lot of people who just naturally don't do that. So it's it's such like a simple reminder um, to acknowledge that we can ask like, like, hey, what do you need from me?
1: Yeah, I think you bring a good point. Like We don't usually do that in our relationships, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We don't really ask. We just kind of go with what we think might be helpful or go with what we know. Yeah. Um, and we don't give ourselves permission to, to ask people what they might need from us. Yeah. And a lot of times people are just waiting to be asked mm. uh, and not have something imposed upon them. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's crazy how some of the simplest things are the most effective, but yeah, I, I think that's like, I think it's really important. Um, it's like a really important lesson um, just for supporting people with, with mental illness. Are there any other, like I- any other advice you have to support someone with mental illness? Um,
1: hmm. You know, I would, I would, I would say to take everything that they say Seriously, yeah. And to handle that information with with care and confidentiality.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And if at any time if things feel risky to you, then they probably are. And to then point that person in in in, in the line, in the way of resources or where they can get help. Or there's usually what you know the National Suicide Hotline, or other hotlines that are out there. You can call to to say, like, I I have a friend who's suicidal. I'm not sure what to do. Or mm. I have a friend who's in crisis. I'm not sure what to do. How can I help this person? You know, maybe they're not ready to call in. They're not ready to see a therapist. But I'm really concerned about them or their safety. So you can call yourself to get support and supporting. You know, oh, you also okay. don't yeah. have to do that part on your own. But, yeah, I would I would say, you know, I think a lot of times when people aren't as well-versed in in mental health and the experiences of people or terminology, sometimes we can conflate certain symptoms with just things that we look down upon morally, right, as far as like laziness or not being able to be social with people or whatever. But I think just to hold that with care and to, to see the full person in their context is yeah, the, the most helpful thing that we could do.
0: Yeah, I I, uh, I guess you, um, just giving the benefit of the doubt, regardless of, you know, how like crazy or, you know, something might sound. Um, if someone's kind of opening up and, and telling you how they feel, you just you have to trust it and, and accept it. And uh, yeah, like handle it with care. I think that's a really good point. Um, and, and something I never thought about is in terms of supporting, you can get support for supporting so like utilizing those hotlines. I, I think that's, that. that's a really good point. So th- there's some kind of buzzwords in the mental health, like community that I, I know have kind of been popping up or maybe they've always been present and I'm just realizing they're popping up, but like self-love, self-respect, self-care, self-worth. So I want to get into a couple of those here. Um, I know like self-love and self-respect, they, they seem so like inherently obvious, but, uh, through, you know, personal experiences, I realize that they can actually be really difficult. And sometimes the hardest decisions is um, to make is, is, um, you know, in, in opt for self love and self respect, it's the hardest decision to make. So uh, maybe like based off your own personal experience or experience as a mental health professional, how, how do you recommend working on this and recognizing what is out of self love and self respect and um, like what is not?
1: Yeah, I mean, I will start with, um, you know, self-compassion, self-love, self-respect, all of that stuff. And about 90% things, 90% of the things that we talk about in therapy, are pretty inherent and intuitive. Yeah. Like, I, you know, when I when I say it and it comes out of my mouth, and I say it to somebody sitting in the room with me, they're like, "Yeah, that makes sense." And I was like, "Yeah, yeah it, it doesn't." You know, it, it all kind of makes sense to us. We can always intuit it, and it makes logical sense. And the hard part about all of this stuff. Specifically, when it comes to self-compassion and self-love, is like that action step of actually practicing it, and then that second step of accepting it as a true thing about yeah. ourselves. But I think with with any type of skill, right? And I view self-compassion and self-love like as a skill that we can utilize. The more that we practice it, the better that we become at it. Become at it, you know. And it's just like a, it's a continual practice that you have to engage in. Um, in order to get to this place where we can then accept it as truisms about ourselves, mm. right? And so actually start to build our self-compassion and our self-love is even when you're feeling your worst and your negative thoughts are at their worst and you're calling yourself all kinds of names and, and everything that you should be doing or could be doing or would have been doing, et cetera, you still have to make the intentional decision of, I have to say something good about myself. I have to be grateful for something about myself in this moment, because those things don't leave me even when I'm feeling bad. They're a part of me and who I am at all times. And I have to remind myself of that. And the more that we do that, the easier it becomes, the more it kind of becomes how we think about ourselves and how we think about ourselves in relation to the world. And the more we can accept that into our heart. But yeah, short story, you just, just got to do it, just got to practice. Yeah. Um, just gotta practice, and I I always advise people to have kind of external reminders of that. So not only just like this internal practice of affirmations or cognitive reframing, but also like you know put some post some put some post-it notes on your on your mirror, you know, yeah. and yeah. And, sure. and write out your strengths or, and write out what you're grateful for about yourself. Cool. Um, so you can see it, right? You can see it. And even when you're experiencing that and you're at your lowest, the person who wrote those things about yourself is still you, right? This is an external reminder of who you are outside of feeling like this on this moment.
0: Right? Yeah, no, that, that that's, that's really good advice. Yeah, as far as like self-compassion goes, um, I know, I think um, the psychiatrist told me basically, do you talk to yourself like you would talk to your best friend? Because right. um, I find that, sometimes like our own internal dialogue can be um, pretty critical. And if I was having the same internal dialogue, a dialogue with the best friend, it would be a lot more compassionate, actually. So I, I think that's like, a- another thing that maybe seems so obvious, but uh, when we actually think about it, it- it's kind of a-, a shock to us. And as far as like the external reminders, I know, Another thing that I always like like to recommend is like the background of our phone. So whenever we unlock it or lock it, what we'll, we'll see, um, I like to just like make a black screen and write write a couple of things that are relevant to us in a certain time period. And it, 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 that's like it's a great reminder because I mean, with how much we're on our phones, every time we unlock it, we see that message, um, and I, I found that to be pretty effective too. Um, Man, this no, really good advice.
1: Yeah, there's all kinds of things you can do as far as external reminders. You know, posting notes, getting yourself a dry erase board, and writing out, you know, weekly affirmations and goals. There's, you can set up daily reminders on your phone that just kind of say good things about yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I like the lock screen or the background thing on the phone. There's, there's, there's a lot, right? You can leave that up to your creative license to get as, as creative with it as you want to. But there's things that we can do. To impact
0: that yeah no that, that makes sense and um, I, I know maybe the um, what the, the pessimist uh, may say like what what does this even matter this is me saying like good things about myself but like I want other people to to believe what I think of myself but I think that kind of maybe like what do you think maybe that kind of contradicts what self-love is in its essence right like these external validations, being from you is kind of it's like creating this full circle of 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 reminding of that there is self-love
1: right yeah and if we're i feel like you know we want people to believe um who we think ourselves to be mm. but we can't be reliant upon that as only validation of who we are because i and, you know that sets us up in a trap right because if we don't have if we don't build our own internal validation. There will be nothing there to catch us when we don't get that external validation. And it's, you know, we can't rely on that because that that relies, that means relying on other people uh, to be there and to validate who you are as a person. And sometimes that's there and it's great, right? And sometimes it won't be there and sometimes we won't get it. So building our internal validation and our self-compassion is an act and being able to create a safety net for ourselves. And remain yeah. solid in who we believe ourselves to be without that external validation.
0: Yeah, it's uh, I guess dangerous to rely on um, like our environment for that validation. But again, it's like just probably one of those things that's so much easier said than done. Um, and, and at the same time, you know, I guess it's it's totally normal to um, you know, there's like maybe like part of what we were talking about these stigmas against therapy. And, uh, like a, like another stigma would be like, fuck what other people think. But I think it's a totally normal reaction to care about what people think, but that's like an initial response and maybe like thinking about going further. And and as far as like that validation, reminding ourselves that what other people think of us like may matter to me, but also, um, what I, what Matt, what I think of me is maybe more important.
1: Yeah. And, you know, we're human, so we all care about what other people think of us. Yeah. Um, if, if we get far too far in this, uh, you know, spectrum of like, I don't give a shit what anybody thinks of me. Really, I mean, that's kind of disregarding our own humanity and caring about people's opinions, especially people's opinions that we think that we care about, right, as people. And, you know, that just becomes a defense mechanism where we shut ourselves off from connecting with people and hearing from people. But yeah, like you're saying, like we we don't have to be in this place where everybody's opinions of us externally then creates our own self image. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's yeah. all about balance.
0: Yeah. So speaking of balance, um, like another, you know, I think this is the the last fine line analogy that that I have here. If you weren't tired of it by now, but um, the, the another fine line that you know, I I think is pretty important to consider is, um, another one of these like buzzwords is self-worth. So, uh, you know, how do you recommend walking this fine line of maintaining self-worth and, uh, being enough? And I say that in quotes, um, while striving to improve ourselves spiritually. And when I say spiritually, I mean, kind of in a loose context, um, but intellectually, emotionally, physically, et cetera.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's kinda of like a double edged sword at times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of times we use our our negative thought cycle as or we view it as motivation. Mm-hmm. Right? We're telling ourselves, Oh, we can we can do we could do this, I could have done that better, I could have done this better, I should be able to do this and then I need to make all these changes to be able to do that. Right? Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of times – I've I really see that work for people without some type of detriment to their own, to their mental health. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. And so I think it's a little bit of kind of changing our motivational structure um, where we are accepting ourselves, accepting of ourselves at every moment in time. And at the same time, recognizing changes that we can make for the next time. So I think a lot of that is, you know, when we talk about self-worth and self-compassion, self-love, we talk about being more objective towards ourself right? and not letting our own negative narrative and our own uh, anxiety or depression or anything kind of influence our own self-image and our own thoughts that we say towards ourselves. So it's kind of removing our own bias and saying, like, OK, well, at all times you're doing as, as everything that you can right? You're doing everything that you can in every single moment with what you got in the moment. So we can start there, that whatever I did, it's what I had in that moment. And that was enough. That's all I could do. I couldn't do more. I couldn't do more than what I did there in that moment with what was in front of me. Now, the next moment, what would I like to do better, right? You can say, like, I did this, you know, we want to recognize what we did well in that situation and kind of bring balance to our own thought cycle, not only focusing on the negative and kind of disqualifying every single positive thing that we might have done or creating this mental filter where we only see the things that kind of corroborate this narrative that we're not doing enough.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, we want to
1: bring balance to that and see, like, okay, well, I did X, Y, and Z well, Right, and I deserve to acknowledge that for myself and affirm that, like, yeah, I did that shit. Right, maybe that's something I didn't do before, and then we can look see on this other column and say, like, okay, well, I didn't do A, B, C well, and now let me think about for A, what are action steps that I can take to make that better the next time, and do the same thing for B, same thing for C, um, and then use the next opportunity to kind of capitalize and try something different. You know? But I think in walking that fine line. It's can be helpful to kind of be to think about objectivity, right? Objectivity towards yourself, yeah. um, and not kind of focusing on just one kind of side of the situation.
0: Yeah, and um, you know, as far as like doing the best we can, whatever that may be in in that moment. Sometimes, I don't know that this is something personally, I'm still struggling to understand, because, um and, and I feel like maybe others are too, as far as um when I first was learning about mental health, I was a critic to some statements, I guess, and that's just coming from my own ignorance. But one of the ways I was a critic is that like, you are doing the best you can. And um really, if, if you're doing, if you're not doing the best you can, then there's probably, you know, some kind of underlying it. No, I don't want to say issue, but component to that, um, where you're still doing the best you can. So, uh, I, I don't know, maybe this was like a little kind of long winded in articulating that, but th- does that make sense? In in I guess, does that, um, is that something that you, you, you have anything to like speak up, I guess, or speak on? Yeah.
1: I mean, I think our best is contextual.
0: Mm-hmm
1: our best is not always going to be the same from day to day to day. We don't always operate at a hundred percent, you know, maximum efficiency. Yeah. So our best is influenced about influenced by what's happening that day and what's going on in our life. And sometimes your best on Tuesday is not going to be the same best that you have on Friday. So you might be operating at 40% on Tuesday. And if you give all 40%, then that's all you got. You know, you can't give more than that based on, what's happening throughout that day. if you get to Friday and you're at 80 and you give 80, um, that's all you got too. But I think what we don't want to do is kind of compare those, uh, compare those two best and say like, well, I should have been operating at 80% when I was at 40% um, because it's literally impossible for you to do, right? You you, you don't have any more in your tank. You don't have any more in your body to be able to muster that. So I think that's when we think of the concept of, you know, you're always doing as much as you can in every single moment. When we think of that, we are recognizing our context. You're not just a human being that's in a in a vacuum, right? That can just work um, without anything outside of you affecting your performance or affecting how you live your life. When we recognize our context, we recognize our own humanity and allow ourselves to be compassionate towards ourselves, knowing that we aren't robots, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I think this goes, this is like a really great point that goes back to like the nuances uh, of everything and um, like avoiding kind of blanket statements. Yeah. So I guess my last like kind of statement on on this is um, when I think of like doing the best we can, like, for example, I'm thinking of a situation where maybe like I'm laying in bed and I'm deciding between watching Netflix or like reading a book that I might need to read for some, I don't know, some assignment. And I think well like I need to do this, but I want to do this wanting being obviously watching Netflix. So maybe I feel like this also presents a larger issue so I guess uh, you know for for simplicity's sake, uh, it's it's kind of get can get complicated but really we should maybe the ideal situation is wanting to do what we need to do, but sometimes there is a difference in those two and um, sometimes the best, we can do is doing what we need to do, but um, still opting for what we want to do. And I guess that just comes down to like this individual freedom that we all have. But in those cases, are we doing, do you, I mean, do you kind of think we're doing our best or is that, does that just part of doing the best we can? Does that make sense? I think,
1: yeah, no, I, I see what okay. you're saying. I think what, what we want to do is to be able to make conscious decisions in those moments. Yeah. Um, to not be on autopilot and constantly just doing things that we want to do or we think might feel good in the moment. Cause I think in that we can get tripped up at doing something that we think we want to do that ends up making us feel worse at the end of it. Gotcha. Right? It ends up making us feel like, well, oh, I, I could have been working or I really wanted to actually do this other thing. And I thought I, if I would have got that done, I would have felt so much better. You know, cause I, you know, a lot of times, um, avoidance can disguise itself as things that we want to do and kind gotcha. of create this, this short-term belief of I don't have to worry about that thing or feel anxious about that thing anymore. I can just, you know, watch Avatar The Last Airbender on Netflix um, and feel good. Um, but when we get done with one episode or three episodes or a season or the whole thing, oh, we yeah, the whole that, thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? You realize like, night. oh, like I, I feel – I didn't get anything done, and I feel terrible about that. Terrible about that. And then we, a lot of times, we enter into our own negative thought cycle of I'm so lazy, and I'm never going to finish anything, and I'm going to drop out of school, and then my parents are going to hate me. Like all those thoughts pop up at the end of that because we're yeah. still left with the thing that we've been avoiding. So I think you know a big thing, kind of going back to what we talked about before, like raising awareness, right? Is we want to be able to raise our awareness so when these moments happen in our life where we are deciding between two different behaviors, we can be conscious and making that decision and mm-hmm. be well informed in making that decision. And if we have things that we need to do, but we want to watch Netflix, we're conscious in making that decision to watch Netflix, knowing that, you know, I'm, I'm really leaning into what I want to do right now. Maybe this might be good for me being aware of, you know, maybe our, our own avoidant tendencies, and our own mental health, we can then make better decisions in the moment with things that are going to serve us in the long run.
0: Yeah. When, when you're saying this, it kind of reminds me of, um, like self-care. So that's actually the last buzzword that I wanted to talk about here, but self-care is, um, you know, I, I feel like there's also a good way. I, I actually saw this on Instagram was a good way to put what self-care maybe truly maybe is deciding to do something. And it's something that's going to make me feel good, like afterwards and well afterwards. So like an example that this account or this therapist used was working out, like she doesn't want to go work out, but after the fact, she feels good about it. And so that's an example of self care. Can you maybe touch on um, like, what is self care versus complacency? And I, I think you all already did like a really good job of that. But maybe if there's anything else that you want to like note of on that, specifically?
1: Yeah. Well, I, you know, self-care sometimes is making a difficult decision and doing something that maybe not, that might not be the easiest to start doing, mm-hmm. uh, kind of like you were saying, and then we'll end up feeling better at the end of
0: it. Gotcha. I think
1: journaling is one of those practices where it's like, it's hard to start. It's hard to sit down and carve out some time and then just write for 15, mm-hmm. 20, 30 minutes. But in my, in my personal experience has helped me but it's, it's hard for me to start doing it. But I know in the end, I'm going to feel better. And that's one of the reminders that I tell myself, like, oh, man, I really don't want to journal at night. It's, it's 9 or it's 10 o'clock or it's 1030 or it's, I'm so tired or blah, blah, blah. I just don't feel good. But I remind myself, like, I know I feel better after I do this. Every single time I feel better. So maybe it might just be worth it to, to start and write a couple sentences and see how I feel. And if I'm just not feeling it, after those couple sentences, I'll close the book and I'll go to sleep. Mm. But if I can keep going, let me keep going, right? And so yeah, exercise, journaling, you know, things like that that maybe that are harder to start. That's self care. But sometimes it's easy stuff too. You know, I, I I Netflix for a lot of the people that I might meet with is self care, and for me personally, <laughs> that shit is self care too. Oh yeah. Sometimes you need to either intentionally veg out or intentionally pay attention to something that you really enjoy watching and connecting with. Right? So I, there's no one way to do it. Um, but I think in some of those easier things that are, some of the things that are easier to kind of like get out of control and kind of take over whole stretches of time, we want to put boundaries on that. Right? So mm, I think yeah. Netflix and like television and streaming and all that, that's a good example of that is like, all right, well, this is part of my self care plan, but I need to put a boundary. Like, I'm only going to watch one episode or two episodes, uh, and then I'm going to move on to the next thing. Uh, maybe something that I need to do, a um, responsibility I need to take care of, so it doesn't take over my whole day.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, what what was that one uh, Netflix show where they 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 uh, they try to survive or they show their like surviving tactics or whatever? Um, remember that it was like a national geographic show on netflix yeah doomsday that's that's some real self-care stuff right there
1: (laughs) oh yeah when the pandemic started that's all i was watching i was like i need to get ready
0: yeah okay cool so uh i guess there was a couple more things here um that i wanted to touch on and in one of them is about like accountability and I know like, okay, so some of these topics we've been talking about, there could be a whole podcast in itself. And I think like accountability is one of them. So I guess I want to avoid accountability of other people and focus on accountability on ourselves because that's something that we can focus, that we actually have control over. So like this is kind of a similar theme to a few other questions I had, but how can we keep ourselves accountable in a space where, um, Self compassion and forgiveness are so so important.
1: Yeah, I think it's allowing ourselves to check in with ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, um, let's say that you start therapy or you start out this uh, treatment modality or you start out this new set of behaviors, and we can then tell ourselves, "Well, let me just check in three weeks in, just to see how I feel, mm-hmm. right." And in, in that check-in, you know, we want to see like, okay, well, what's working? What are the things that I'm doing that are working for me, that are serving me, that are making me feel better? And also what isn't working, you know, and the things that aren't working, how, to, how can I retool those and go forward with that? Or how do I let go of some of those things? And within that process, we can also check our own accountability and like, am I actually doing the things that I need to do in order to feel better, in order to continue to progress? Uh, am I doing that? right? Like, am I doing it? Am I making a commitment to doing it on a daily or weekly basis? And Mm -hmm. if not, what's getting in the way of that? What are my barriers in committing to that or to doing it on certain days? And then strategizing around those barriers. But yeah, I I like the idea of kind of just evaluating and constantly evaluating um, throughout our time of making change, but with this compassionate lens.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I I hear that. I guess. So another theme of the the, this kind of um, this podcast, but the whole initiative in general is, well, one is mental health, but another is like social justice. And I want to make sure that, you know, we we touch on that at the end here. So like being a black therapist, and part of being like, uh, licensed social work, I guess, in a lot of ways, they kind of go hand in hand, especially what's going on today. But I I mean, obviously, what's been going on since day one. Um, so for, you know, there's there's several populations that are being affected by several situations now. So there's, um, with COVID, there's a lot of xenophobia towards the Asian community, you know, so on. Uh, what kind of advice do you have for keeping one's mental health in check that are affected by these situations? And then just, you know. Being, you know, a black mental health professional, how do you help, like maybe black individuals that come to you who are their own mental health is being affected by what's going on? Right.
1: Yeah, I want to start with like that's the reason that I got into social work uh, itself and therapy itself was to be able to help people like my dad, to be able to help and people like my mom to be able to help other black people with their mental health concerns. Um, So I think in thinking with that lens, it's also recognizing people's full context, right? Like recognizing the person and the environment. And when we think of people of color, and think of black people specifically, that's recognizing how racism and discrimination and anti-blackness and oppression impacts people's mental health Mm -hmm. and impacts our own internal environment. You know, racism is a public health crisis that has been created by the system itself. Mm-hmm. Um, that impacts people how we live on a day-to-day basis. You know, uh, when we think of micro and macroaggressions, we can you know, think about how that impacts our, our stress levels and how we metabolize stress and the higher levels of cortisol that are found, found in people, found in people, found in black people, people specifically, there's higher baselines. And then you, when you have those higher levels of cortisol on a daily basis, you know, cortisol is in your body, right? Like it, it impacts your physical body. And then we think about like health inequalities and uh, and among among races and ethnicities, you know, it's, it's just it's this full circle thing. But I think uh, a really important part of the work that I do is, is trying to connect those dots for people that they haven't connected them before uh, your your environment and the things that go on in this world and the things that happen to you externally because of this racist system yeah. impact your internal environment and can impact your depression and can impact your anxiety and some of these things that are happened to you are traumatic and that has an impact on your body and have the an impact on how we then Few people and relationships and the world. So I think the big thing is that, you know, those societal factors are a part of our health and are a part of our mental health. And we have to recognize that to then be able to work on, you know, un-internalizing certain things and being more aware of like, where we need to take care of ourselves in, in certain situations and environments. And also you're just having a space to process that shit, you know. When you experience mm-hmm. racism and oppression on a daily basis, it just becomes a part of your life. You just learn how to roll with it and kind of let it you know, roll down the side of your back. But it it, it, it creates a, a toll on you over time. So, and a lot of times we, you know, racism is, is hard to prove, right? Discrimination can be hard to prove. Oppression can be hard to prove in white supremacist standards of, like, factual evidence, you know, that people could hide it very easily. And so sometimes people get in a situation where, you know, we, you feel like you're going crazy because nobody else is seeing what you're seeing. So being able to process that in a space where somebody can see you and hear you as a full human being and what you're experience, experiencing can be helpful as well, just to get that validation of, like, no, like I, this is happening to me you know, as a black person or as a busy woman or as a disabled person like this, this shit is happening and it's not made up by me Um, and it has an impact on my mental health. And I need to get that out.
0: Yeah. That, that sounds super frustrating. And it kind of reminds me of um, what we were talking about earlier, as far as um, someone saying how they feel and not recognizing it as their own truth. And it it sounds kind of like this is, Um, at least in a way a little similar how people not believing um, that this is how you feel and this is how you're affected. Um, I mean, again, this could be like a whole podcast in itself. There's just so much ignorance out there. And yeah, I mean, like as far as the the cortisol level goes, it's crazy. Like They're doing uh, studies on COVID, I guess, results on different populations and uh, populations with higher generational trauma have a higher, I guess, rates of um, infection. And it, it's, it's just, I mean, it's just crazy. So and it sounds super frustrating. How do you keep your own mental health in check? You know, being black and not only being, you know, a black mental health professional, but just being black in general with everything that's going on, especially with social media, you know, it, it can be, I guess, I don't want to say speak of bit from my own experience because it's not but maybe it can be overwhelming with so much, I guess of it everywhere, you know so do did you, did you mind speaking on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, it's, 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 it's weird to think about because you think, you know black people have been murdered by the police since the creation of police forces mm-hmm. in this country It's black people it's, it's as old as this country Disproportionate treatment of Black people white boys. but it feels it's felt different during this pandemic with all the attention and everybody talking about it, um, and it just constantly be everywhere and having kind of As a Black person, so like on oh, one hand, like I'm grateful for it because people are talking about it and that gives us a window of opportunity to change something. And at the other hand, like it's draining and it's overwhelming and. I feel more present and cognizant about it when I walk out the door. You know, there's periods of time throughout this pandemic, you know, right after when George Floyd was murdered and, you know, when Breonna Taylor was murdered and
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: countless other names Where like, I began to find myself being anxious being outside, just being black and being outside. Uh, and I was like, damn, like, it, it took me a second, right? And think about that, like me, a mental health therapist, it took me a second to recognize my own anxiety and how racism and oppression was impacting that. Right? Like I had to really sit down and think about like why, and like ask, literally ask myself the question why am I anxious right now? I can't pinpoint it to anything. And I was like, oh, it's because black people were being worried about the police and being called, you know, having the police called in on them um, for any other reason, um, mm-hmm. subjecting them to violence. And I was like, oh okay, well that makes sense. But yeah, your point is like uh, to your point what you're saying, like it, it does feel. Like, um and so how I've been taking care of myself is I have a therapist. You know, I have a therapist to be able to process some of these things and process the own work that I do in supporting people. Um, and specifically supporting black people, right? Like it's when you're in this kind of helping profession, you're like I, I love talking about You know, uh, identity stressors and and things that are connected to people's racial and ethnic identities are processing that. And that's a big part of why I do the work itself. But I think, specifically, working with black people, I then have to help people, black people, regulate, and then have to regulate myself in in talking about the things that they're experiencing because, you know, a good 75 to 85% of the time, I've experienced the same things. So I'm kind of mm-hmm. working on my own trauma or working through their, their trauma. Um, and then I have to take my own stuff somewhere else so I can kinda of work through it, it and continue to be in the place where I can do the work that I want to do. Um okay. so you know, outside of you know having an individual therapist that's been extremely helpful for me, it's having a structured self care plan. You know, there's there's nights where like I just dedicate, you know, after I get done with work or I'm just gonna do my self-care routine. You know, I'm gonna take a nice long shower. I'm gonna hop in the bath, put some music on, get out of that. I'm gonna watch something good on TV. I'm gonna eat a really good meal. I'm gonna journal a little bit, and I'm gonna get a full night's full night uh, sleep. You know, or you know, know, just making a a dedicated and intentional effort effort to doing something for myself to help me regulate.
0: Well deserved, Ian. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, those are
1: some of the things that I do along with you know reaching out to my to my friends and family, you know, and being you know, able to talk with my people and people that I care about and love, I just kind of talk about what's going on and, and not feel alone. In
0: that. Yeah, that th- thanks for thanks for touching on that. Um, I know that's a really important to talk about with everything that is going on. Um, a question that I had before is. How can we support, you know, someone that's in our life with mental illness? How, and obviously this is individual, but um, being Black, how can, as general or specific as as you mind getting into, how can we support, you know, uh, like Black friends, just Black people in our life, I guess?
1: I I think a good good, good point of contact is just reaching out
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and just asking people how they're doing. Uh, and as as a black person talking to non-black friends, you know they might not always feel comfortable talking to you about it, and that's mm-hmm. okay. You know, that's not an indictment on your friendship or relationship. They might not just feel comfortable, about it. Uh, but you can always reach out and ask, you know, how they're doing or how they're doing with everything that's going on, and can build a relationship to a board I mean, can talk about some of those things, but I think it really just starts with checking in on people to see how they are. checking you know, check in on your black friends to see if they're doing okay and how if they need anything from you, you know, if you can help them in any way. But I don't think that's anything more than that.
0: That makes sense. So just kind of creating that line of communication so that you know they know that it's there. Yeah.
1: And, you know, if people are comfortable talking about it, you know, they'll, they'll start with it, right? Or it'll mm-hmm. come out very soon. Yeah. You know, it's a part of our lived experience and what's happening right now. And that creates an opportunity to, to talk about it and to validate you know, people's experiences and to offer and support and
0: allyship. Gotcha. Well, um, I guess I wanted to open the floor to you. Um, you know, I don't want this podcast and, um, you know, conversation to be limited based off what I'm asking. So is there anything that you wanted to talk about based on, you know, mental health, social justice, um, you know, anything in regards to to that or, you know, whatever, is there anything that you want to talk about or mention?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I feel like this is a very, Critical point in the history of our nation, and I do feel like there is a window of opportunity to have some effectual change happen um, as far as you know equity within this country. And I'm both excited about that and and skeptical at the same time. But I do feel like this is this is a point where allies need to step up. And, and do something, <laughs> need to step up in and support and, and see where they can be helpful, mm-hmm. right? And that might not and usually isn't taking the leadership positions like in these fights with social equity, but it's using your privilege and using your power and using your resources in order to support organizations and people and policy that are fighting for equity within this country. She's crazy right now, you know, Um, and also she's been crazy forever. And this history is built upon the oppression of specific people. And I think anything that we can do to reverse that and correct it and create equity is is urgent. Right. We, we, We don't need to wait on that. Right. I think the waiting is in service of the status quo. Right, and keeping everything the same so long story short I, I hope everybody is out there increasing their awareness increasing their knowledge of mm-hmm. racism and oppression and how it works in systems I think a great book that I think everybody should read is How to Be Anti-Racist I think, every, I think that should be a central reading for everybody <laughs> in the I world um, mm-hmm. but specifically within this country um, to increase your own awareness and see where uh, you can make an impact, you know, not, you know, not only on this national level and changing how we think and talk about things in the national discourse, but also um, seeing how you can make an impact on your own micro environment, you know, just how you make an um, impact on your family or on your groups of friends, the people around you and being able to change the discourse and how you talk about things just in your own little bubble. Um, but, yeah, I think times are unprecedented right now with the pandemic and and with, you know, all the discussion around police brutality and, and all other types of societal issues that I hope people are putting in the work to make themselves useful during these times.
0: Well said, Ian. Uh, a message to all.
1: <laughs> a message to all. Go forth. <laughs> Go forth and and get some shit done for people.
0: Awesome, Ian. Uh, So I guess my last question, is it going to be okay? Yes.
1: (laughs) It's going to be okay. As long as we keep fighting, as long as we keep working, as long as we keep supporting each other, as long as we start to listen to each other and learn from each other, it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. it's a long road. It's a long journey. And, you know, we've all been on it as a collective uh, human race for a long time, but we have to keep moving forward and keep shutting the things down that make us go backwards.
0: Definitely. Well, I really appreciate your time, Ian. Um I think this was like a really good first podcast and uh you know, I really value, you know, your, your experience, your, um, you know, academically and just life experience, you know, value as a friend. And thanks for coming on here. Um, I, I think, like I said, I think this went really well. So how this uh, initiative is going to work is the charity part. So where the um, $5 from every shirt will be donated to is actually picked by the speaker of the podcast that's relative to the shirt. So, uh, Ian, were you able to kind of decide um, where you wanted the donate what, what org you wanted the donations to go to. And do you mind speaking a little bit on what that org is?
1: Yeah, so I chose the Loveland Foundation, um, which helps to provide therapy services for Black women um, in America uh, for free. Um, they give out, uh, they have like a therapy fund that people, that Black women can access uh, to get therapy. And there's a lot of different ways to donate. And it was founded by uh, Rachel Cargill who I believe is a social worker. But yeah, I, that that's the foundation I chose. I think Black women are one of the most oppressed uh, and discriminated against uh, people within this country and the most mistreated in this country. And we often don't give them the space and support that we need. So yeah, that's a little bit of why I chose this wonderful foundation who provides money for people to get um helping to to have spaces to access therapy
0: awesome yeah it's a it's an unfortunate double whammy being a woman and being black right
1: yeah in terms of uh, of what you know society and the system value it's Mm -hmm. it makes life really difficult
0: oh yeah yeah good point yeah in terms of society not in terms of just being a woman and just being black, yeah, yeah, <laughs> a very important yeah, distinction. Yeah, a good, an important distinction, definitely. Well, yeah, so I'll, I'll be, um, you know, th- this initiative is all about transparency. So, l- logistically, as far as how shirts are ordered, it's a little, I guess, a little bit of a guessing game right now, um, as far as making costs low. But the the plan is to um, a month from when this all goes live, and this goes for you know. For anything that's any kind of podcast and shirt that's released, um, is to uh, post how much the donations were and post kind of proof that they were being donated. So um, you know, and I'll also be sure to tag you know whatever um, social media Loveland Foundation has to help bring awareness to uh, their organization. Uh, Ian, you know, at this at this stage, I'm sure almost there's gonna be some people listening that don't know you, but. A lot of people listening right now know you, but for those who don't know you, is there like somewhere, you know, on social media that that you you want people, random people to follow you or or get to know you better?
1: Yeah, they can follow me on, on IG. I'm on the gram. Follow me at Ian Deadlifts. I'm on there pretty frequently. And that's probably the only thing that I use right now. But yeah, I'm very open to random people. Uh, asking me questions about mental health, about powerlifting, about social justice, and I'm always willing to help and direct people to resources for
0: all those things. What a good guy! <laughs> and and you also be with someone lifting some heavy ass weight, huh?
1: Yeah, occasionally I'll pick up some weight and I'll
0: put it back down when the hips when the hip and back is is feeling I Yeah, yeah.
1: When it's feeling good, you know, some weight will be moved, but every now and then.
0: Well, thanks again, Ian. Um, I I really appreciate your time. This was a podcast one and uh, everyone that's listened, I I, I truly uh, do appreciate your time listening to this. It takes a good person to listen to a a whole podcast that has just starting up. So you are a good person if you listen to to it to the end here. Um, Thank you, good person. Yeah, thank you, good person. Um, So I'm going to close off the podcast here um, and I hope everyone that's listening, is able to increase their mental health in some capacity and their awareness of social justice and um, and, and read those damn books. Re- read a damn book. Read so, a book. Read a book. All right, I'm going to close it off here. Thanks, everyone. I'm back. Did you miss me? After editing this podcast, I noticed that I referred to what's going on today as simply what's going on today. And I'm a little disappointed by that and I want to address that and clarify what I meant. What I mean is what's been actually going on since day one. That is the murdering of black lives, the implementation of racist policies since day one that have discriminated, provided injustice and inequity towards black lives. And I'm here to list just a handful of names of black lives that have been lost to these racist policies and this list will unfortunately continue unless we do our part, advocate, inform, educate, and change the racist policies that have been contributing to this effect since day one. Jacob Blake, Elijah McLean, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Trayvon Martin, Pamela Turner. The list goes on before this. The list will keep going on after this. Let's get better. Let's do better. Signing off.